Thank you for tuning in to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. You're about to hear a live sermon, which was recorded at our 11 a.m. contemporary service. We are thrilled to share it with you. Thank you for listening. Well, again, welcome to Roswell Presbyterian Church. It's great to see you this morning. I want to let you know that next Sunday in the sanctuary at 4 p.m., we're hosting a Jazz Vespers service. This is, this is the third year in a row we've done this. It's part of Black History Month. Dwight Andrews, who's a pastor at First Congregational downtown, is bringing his jazz um, group here. It's an amazing event. You want to invite friends, come. It'll be 4 p.m. here in the sanctuary. He's really world-renowned, um, and it's going to be a real treat to have him here at RPC. Also, today is the last day to sign up for a community group. We're really encouraging folks. They're meeting at different times in different places all over North Metro Atlanta. So I invite folks to, um, to be a part of that if, if you can make that work in your schedule. Well, today we continue our sermon series looking at counterfeit gods. It's my contention that while you know, sociologists and scholars say that Religious belief is in decline in North America. It's my contention that that's not the case. That people are still worshiping. They're just worshiping seemingly secular activities and objects. We've looked at some of them, busyness, technology, family. And today we're going to look at the the counterfeit god of romance. I don't think it's an accident that my mother-in-law decided to visit today. So I will try to be on best behavior. We're going to read one of the most famous romantic passages from Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all of my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we ask that in the next few moments you might be our teacher that you might teach us about one of the great mysteries, about romance, that captures so many hearts and minds in our culture. Lord, and it often takes us captive. So we ask that we might experience the freedom that only comes from your grace and your mercy. 
Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What is your picture of the perfect wedding? Maybe it's the royal wedding between Prince William and Catherine Middleton. Or maybe for you guys out there, it's those, those weddings and the, the wedding crashers, you know, Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson dropping in. Or maybe it's the one you had last summer where you were in Napa Valley, that great cheese plate, the honey roasted jam. I've been to a lot of weddings. <laughs> and several months ago, I officiated probably one of my favorite weddings. I didn't know the couple really before we met for our pre-burial counseling. But I've, after we met over the, the months leading up to the wedding, I really just loved this couple. They were really special. So the day came for the, the wedding, and the venue was the Piedmont Driving Club. Beautiful, I mean, breathtaking venue. An amazing, amazing place to have a wedding. It was a large wedding, almost 200 guests there, and they file in and they sit down. The groomsmen all process. The groom is standing to my left with his friends beside him. The bridesmaids process down. They're standing to my right. And everybody is ready. I motion for the congregation to stand. Everybody stands up. The wedding coordinator goes to the back, shuts the back doors. Everybody is holding their breath. And the fire alarm goes off. And it continues to go off for 25 minutes. Everybody's kind of murmuring to themselves, do you think she pulled it? Did she take off? The dad is asking, you know, can I get a discount for this? And finally, after about 25 minutes, the fire alarm goes off. And here's why this is my favorite wedding. We all stand back up. We look back. The door opens, and there she is, the beautiful bride with her arm around her dad's arm, and she walks in, and everybody begins to clap, and there's this resounding ovation. Everybody is celebrating her, and a smile comes across her face, and she walks down for one of the biggest moments of her life. It reminds me, kind of like that wedding, in romance, what we want, what we expect, is not always what we get. The, oh, the ability to overcome the letdown, the ability to see the bright side, to see the glass as half full, that ability is what we call love. How many of you have heard our scripture passage today read at a wedding before? And maybe you've been like me, you hear it read and then you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You might think to yourself, Paul was never married. <laughs> Paul gives these passionate words about love. But how many of us have ever truly experienced this kind of love in our lives? Love is patient. But most of us are going to be angry. Love is kind. Most of us will at some point be mean. Love is not rude. Most of us, yes, will be rude. 
See, we often go into our romantic relationships looking for this great vision of love, aspiring to to Paul's great ideal, but we rarely ever fully experience it. Throughout human history, romance has taken various forms. Romance in our culture has become a counterfeit god. Ernest Becker, who's a psychologist, sociologist, analyzed the situation in his 1974 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death. As he analyzed our culture, he saw a culture where, where religion was in decline. And what he was really interested in was focusing and studying how do people try to avoid the reality of death. How do they avoid it, especially in a culture that no longer believes in God? And one of the ways they do this, he says, is by coming up with what he calls apocalyptic romance. Apocalyptic romance. He says, apocalyptic romance will occur when the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. All spiritual and moral needs will become focused in one individual. This is what it means to worship romance. And this doesn't just happen in marriage. Parents do this with their kids when they talk about the divine ideal that one day you'll meet Mr. Wright. A friend does this when talking about the person who they've dated last. The movies and the books we watch can display unrealistic, romantic ideals. So remember what we've said about all of the counterfeit gods. They're so insidious that we often rarely notice that we're worshiping them. We rarely notice it. So I want to suggest three ways that you can tell if you're turning romance into a counterfeit god. Number one, if you look for a romantic relationship to make you feel like you're enough. I'm going to tell you about an insight that took me many years of therapy to come to. (laughs) When I was in eighth grade, I fell head over heels for a girl named Tracy. I'm not going to give you Tracy's last name because I don't want you to go looking her up and telling her about this. But I thought she was the cutest thing I had ever seen. We would talk on the phone for hours. And you can imagine I'm quite a talker. We talk about movies and school and friends and sports, whatever. I wore a hole into the phone. And finally, I got the courage to ask her out. And even though going out didn't mean you went anywhere, she said no. And I thought the longer I talked to her, I could kind of wear her out. She still continued to say no. Then the low point of the summer came. And I'd been asking her out for months. And she decided to go out with some guy named John. And John wore this like gross, like muddy backwards baseball cap and chewed tobacco. You chose him? And I was crushed. 
I was devastated. Tears. I listened to Chris Isaac's heart-shaped world for hours. You could smell the desperation from miles away. And this unrequited love devastated me. I felt terrible about myself. So what did I do other than listen to sad pop music? Well, once I stopped crying, I got angry. And I became really negative about women in general. I made stupid resolutions. I will never let myself get hurt like this again. I will be the one to break up first. As if she'd gone out with me in the first place. I will never be hurt again. And so, not until my early 30s, <laughs> through therapy, I realized, oh, I've been looking all of this time for somebody else to make me feel like I'm enough, to give me my value. And that's not going to work. And one of the benefits, when Courtney and I started dating for four years, we dated long distance. Four years. And that space forced me to feel like a complete person, to not always rely on somebody else to make me feel like I was enough. You know that movie, Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise says, you complete me. I'd be like, Jerry, come on, man. You're a complete person by yourself. You're okay, man. Be a complete person coming to fall in love with another complete person. You can't let and wait for her to make you feel like you're enough. You're going to annoy the heck out of her. We are complete people because of who God calls us and who God says we are. Number two, another sign you've turned romance into a uh, counterfeit God. Your primary romantic relationship provides what they call your guilt management system. Your guilt management system. As a child of the evangelical subculture in the 1980s and 90s, purity and shame were often rooted in romance. You could see it when uh, people would make purity pledges to remain abstinent before marriage. Girls would wear promise rings. There were true love waits campaigns. People read, I kiss dating goodbye, and committed not to date, hold hands, or kiss until they were married. Why did people do this? Because people were trying to prove that they were pure, to avoid guilt, to do all of the right things so that when I did fall in love, maybe when I did get married, it would be the perfect marriage. The problem is, is that, as I could tell you a bunch of my friends did, rebelled and swung the whole other direction, causing pain to themselves and to others. People often began to see the human body as a source of purity and guilt and shame. Now, as we know, 25% of men have been sexually abused. Over a third of women have been sexually assaulted or abused. So they suffered from great guilt through no fault of their own. It's found the body as a source of shame. When they should be experiencing healing, forgiveness, this is one reason why the author of I Kissed Dating Goodbye recently published an announcement where he said he had lost his faith and no longer believed in God. 
Why? Well, if you have the counterfeit God of romance, it's this ideal, and when it doesn't live up to what you thought it was, and you lose it, you lose your faith too. As young people, 180 of them here this weekend are wondering about how making decisions about their sexuality. Talk to your parents. Talk to your mentors. Talk to somebody you respect. Talk about these complicated reality that we all have and live with. This complicated subject needs all the wisdom and grace and love we can give it. Doesn't need to be a place where we manage our guilt and our shame and purity. We take our guilt and shame and lay them at the foot of the cross and experience God's purity, God's grace for us. God in Jesus Christ makes us pure, forgives our guilt, relieves our shame. We are made pure because of God's love for us, not because of anything we've done or not done. Number three, through romance, you will try to seek salvation. This is birthed out of the 19th century philosophical movement known as Romanticism. So over the past 250 years, our culture has told people to, to go on the search for and look for Mr. or Mrs. Right. We look for our soulmate. Notice the religious language, our soulmate. And for almost the past 20 years, this myth has been exploited by the show The Bachelor. <laughs> At its high point, it had 25 million viewers. Okay? And if you've never seen the show, bless your heart, but it has a, a bachelor that goes through this process of elimination where eventually he comes down to two candidates. It's two women, and he finally has to offer his love and become engaged to one of them. And I went through 23 seasons of this show. <laughs> Season one. Michael did not propose to Marsh. Marsh and Michael broke up after several months. Season two, Aaron and Helene broke up after several weeks. Season three, Andrew and Jen broke up after several months. Season four, Bob did not propose to Estella, but she accepted a promise ring indicating that they would still date. They broke up shortly after the show aired. Season five, Jesse did not propose to Jessica. They continued to date, but broke up several weeks later. You get the point. <laughs> I could go on and on. Over 23 seasons, only several couples survived. And nowadays, the internet only makes looking for Mr. Right all the more difficult. When we do find a partner, then we compare our partner to all of the other options out there. We rate and judge and compare. It'll never lead to a healthy relationship when we look to find our salvation in it. Do you, what, do you know what the... Um, most shared article in the New York Times from 2016, remember that was an election year. The most shared article. It's an article titled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. It's by the philosopher Elaine de Botton. And he said, for most of human history, people chose a partner from logic, reasons of logic. That person's field was next to yours. She could offer you the biggest dowry, so on and so forth. But now we enter marriage out of feeling. We have marriages of feeling. You date somebody, and then you share whatever you have in common, and that's what helps you fall in love. The problem is, is when you get married, all you share is differences. You end up living in your differences. 
And so he says this, every human being will let you down and disappoint you. The person who is best suited to us is not the person who shares our every taste. He or she does not exist. But the person who can negotiate differences in taste intelligently, the person who is good at disagreement, rather than some notional idea of perfect complementarity, he says, it is the capacity to tolerate differences with generosity that is the true marker of the not overly wrong person. Listen to this. Compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be its precondition. Compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be its precondition. Sounds like he was reading some St. Paul. We cannot look to our romantic partners to save us. This will never happen. I call this the Mick Jagger principle. You can't always get what you want. But sometimes you just might find you get what you need. And Mick has had plenty of romantic partners, so she'd take his wisdom on that. <laughs> Here's the thing about 1 Corinthians 13. Paul offers this great vision for love. And for us human beings, this is a goal. It's aspirational. This is what we're aiming for. But really what it is, he says, is this is God's love for us that we cannot even wrap our minds around. We see through a glass dimly. One day we will see face to face. This led Bernard of Claveau in the 12th century to say, we need to go from loving ourselves for our sake to loving God for God's sake to loving ourselves for God's sake. From loving ourselves for our sake to loving God for God's sake, to loving ourselves for God's sake. That's what it means to put romance in its realistic and right place, to receive God's love for us and then share it with others. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you do love us so much, more than we can possibly wrap our minds around. We pray that we might take that reality and put it at the center of our lives that it might transform them, that it might transform our relationships, whether they're romantic or otherwise, or that we might feel and receive your love. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. If you'd like more info about Roswell Presbyterian Church, check out our website at roswellpres.org.